Welcome to The Ride. Life, Work, and Wealth Podcast with your host, Chris Rowe. Chris, many years ago, was both a firefighter and a paramedic and witnessed many people not getting another tomorrow. And it shaped who he is now as a financial strategist. Chris doesn't just help people plan for a secure tomorrow. He helps them plan for a better today. Chris lives in Burlington, Ontario, and is an investment advisor at Green Private Wealth, a trade name of Harborfront Wealth Management, an IROC dealer. Let's get to it. Welcome to part two of Chris DeRose's mini-series on taxes and retirement. Now, in part one, Chris focused on the different sources of income in retirement. And this time around, he reviews the three Ds of tax planning. I'm Patrice Sikora. Chris, tell us about deduct, divide, and defer. Thanks, Patrice. Yep, we are definitely going to get into that today. So now if you listen to the first part of the series, episode, uh, the first episode on this on retirement income sources, now that we have a basic understanding of the different types of income retirees can expect to receive, I want to discuss some tax planning strategies that are, are available to retirees. And um, tax strategies, they can be complicated for sure. Uh, I'm going to do my best as I can in a podcast because listeners can't see anything. And this is just meant to be an induction. It's not solutions to each and every situation since every situation is unique. And uh, with that being said, many people, they do not consider it, but taxes, they usually end up being your single biggest expense in retirement. Therefore, it's essential to individuals entering retirement that you seek professional advice on this when moving from the accumulation phase of retirement planning into the income phase of retirement planning. If you were able to get through the accumulation side on your own or choppy going from institution to institution or not really having someone guide you. Great. You did it. It's a whole different ball game when it comes to now retirement income planning. We have plans for this. It really makes sense to have someone help guide you with this. It just, it's careless withdrawal of assets can come with a significant cost at this phase. And it's just vital that you take advantage of strategies available to you, which you may not know unless you have someone that knows how to deal with this. The thing too is I always tell people, I go, yes, advisors always want clients to consolidate all their assets with them if they have multiple advisors. And, and I get it. I am an advisor. But it is really important at this stage that if you do have multiple assets at other institutions, it is best for you to consolidate them for sure at this time when you're getting close to pulling income out because it just makes it so much easier for income planning, tax planning, tax receipts, all this stuff. So that's something that it is important to uh, to do. One thing I'll just add real quick. I mentioned the first one because of how complicated tax planning, all this stuff can be. We're just, I'm just giving you guys intention to, my intention here is to provide individual advice. So when it, get, when it gets heavy into tax planning, all that, people should really be speaking to a tax professional, such as an accountant for their individual situation before they make any tax choices. Um, okay, so we got through that. So let's talk about the, trying to avoid the tax man. Because he's always getting paid. So taxes are unavoidable. It doesn't mean that we can't be smart when it comes to paying them. There's legitimate strategies available to Canadians that can minimize their tax bills. It's just we want to, therefore, figure a way to minimize the tax stress on these assets that we've been putting away that are now here to help pay for this next exciting chapter that you're entering. 
So we're going to look at five strategies today and we'll get into the D's as Patrice mentioned. So we'll be talking about pension splitting, CPP sharing, spells of loans, prescribed annuities and withdrawal strategies. So quite the menu and I'll try to go to summarize it as best I can and keep it simple. Some of these strategies are not going to work for your individual financial situation. It's they're not definitely not for everyone. I just hope that I can today leave you with something to get you a way of thinking how you could potentially take advantage of maybe one or two of these that may be available to you that, hey, you didn't even know existed. So let's cons let's talk about, okay, so our tax system, the basics of that is Canada operates on a progressive or graduated tax system. Uh, this simply means the more money you make, the more you're going to pay in tax. We kind of all know that. And there's both federal and provincial government income tax levels, and each province has its own income tax rates and bracket. Uh, in Ontario, the, the lowest rate of, so I'm combining them, provincial and federal tax rate is the 20.05 on the first 49,231. So if you make under 49,000, you're paying about 20% tax. Anything above $235,675 is the big boy, the, the, the big percentage of tax where it's 53.53% on anything, any dollar that you make above that. So uh, that's that's a lot of tax. So we'll get into the D's now that uh, Patrice mentioned. And that's, I don't, some people may have heard of this before in regards to tax planning. It's a generic term that's out there. It's Basically, it's deduct, divide, and defer. And deduct is just basically taking deductions to reduce your taxable income. So you report less, you get taxed less. Divide your tax burden by taking advantage of income splitting, which we're going to definitely get into. And defer, that's a big one. Like just defer, that's what RSPs do, right? Defer paying tax to keep your money working for you longer. And we'll start with the first one. So I'll get into pension splitting. So what is it? Well, it's an individual may be able to jointly elect to split up to about 50, well, to split to 50% of their eligible pension income with their spouse or common law partner. This is pension splitting is an example of the divide, the divide out of the three D's it's divide. So why does it work? Well, splitting it helps keep your net income figures low, and this can just help simply preserve government benefits. Remember we talked about in the first series, the old age security clawback. And also what it does, it could potentially just move you into a lower tax bracket, therefore lowering your tax bill. So eligibility for this is under the age 65, like you, if you're under the age of 65, you just can't split everything. The most common form of eligible income that you can split is from a, a registered company pension plan whether it's defined benefit or defined contribution. Individuals who are age 55 or older, they're eligible to split the pension income with their spouses or common laws we mentioned. Individuals without a registered pension plan can also take advantage of this tax strategy by converting their RSPs or deferred profit sharing plans or other RIFs. But this doesn't qualify these incomes I just mentioned until after age 65. So that's where the two timeframes do matter depending on what assets you can split. In terms of government pension sources, the CPP, it's not considered eligible income, although the CPP benefits can be split based on a separate set of sharing rules, which I'm gonna get into. And uh, what I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about that in a second. Also the old age security payments, they are not eligible for this either. So for pension income splitting, you have to you can allocate up to half of the eligible income by completing a tax form it's called 
T032 with the joint election to split the pension income when you file your income taxes. This strategy really only makes sense if, if one of you in the couple is in a higher tax. So let's touch on the CPP sharing now. For the CPP sharing, what is it? It's married or common law partners have the option of sharing their CPP retirement pension through an arrangement known as an assignment. The idea behind this, so and I'll just touch on CPP sharing, that's now an example of divide of the Ds. Hopefully you're not going to get sick of me talking about the, the Ds. <laughs> I just want to tie it back into the beginning of this so that it makes sense. So the idea behind CPP assignment is to transfer some of the taxable income from the higher income spouse to the lower income spouse. The assignment redistributes the income by not having so much allocated to just the higher income, income earner spouse, and then therefore it lowers the tax. It works best, once again, for couples where one spouse is in a much lower tax bracket than the other. What It doesn't increase or decrease the overall retirement pension entitlement from the couples. It's just, it, I, I want to mention that again, it's just simply redistributing the income. And this isn't the same as pension income splitting. So there is a difference because there's different formulas on this, which I'm going to touch on right now. So both spouses must agree to assign, like to qualify for this, they must assign or must agree to assign their CPP to each other. Both spouses must be at least 60 years of age and receiving CPP retirement benefits or ineligible to receive CPP based on the lack of contributions. And the total CPP paid to the married couple, it it doesn't change, as I mentioned, but it wants, I just want to keep mentioning that it's just redistributed. You're just taking it and putting it in one bucket and then splitting it between the two of you is the easiest way I can explain that. The formula they use is basically it's between the two spouses. It relies on the overall length of the relationship. So the formula is going to base it on how many years of CPP you collected while you were together. And that that, that time that the relationship occurred during that, that contribu contributory period of the CPP. And basically with that is it's going to come down to how many months have you guys lived together during that period and the portion of pension earned while living together, that's what's going to be split. And that's pretty much most of that in regards to sharing the CPP. One last thing is when you, if you decide to share CPP, it's just important to consider the income tax brackets that you're each in. You both have to share it. One can't just say, okay, I'm sharing and I'm not. You, you both have to agree to it. And you just have to look at the tax brackets that you're both in because it could result in the higher income earner owing more on CPP or other income if you're not careful. So just like everything else, you have this is just giving you ideas, but you really have to look into your own individual situation. Okay, third strategy, spousal loans. This is a bit more of a complicated strategy, but I'm going to touch on it. So what it is, is a spousal loan is a form of income splitting. So income splitting, it can allow a higher earning spouse to transfer assets to a lower earning spouse. There must be a written agreement between the spouses agreeing to the loan repayment and the borrowing spouses must pay the lending spouse actually interest on the loan for it to fly by through CRA to, for them to basically allow it. This basically, like unlike the previous strategies I've gone through today, this deals with taxes on income from the source, like spousal loans. It helps reduce tax on that second generation income investment income basically and as i mentioned it would that would it would work where it results from the if the investments were held solely by just the higher income earning spouse well they're able to move that to potentially a lower income 
earning spouse is what this is about. It's if done properly, it can definitely work. It's just, it can be a little bit more complicated. So I'll try my best to kind of explain it in a nutshell here. So let me just say, uh, let's go through a little bit of an example. I'm not going to kill you with numbers because that can get complicated as you're listening to a podcast, but let's just say um, you have spouse A that gets a $250,000 bonus. And if someone like that's getting a bonus, obviously member of the tax brackets I mentioned, they're going to be in that top 53% tax bracket. So let's say that individual that got that $250,000 is going to be taxed on that. Well, that's going to be a whole heck of a lot of tax if, if the individual is on their own, um, because 53% on that tax bracket is going to be on that income, you're looking at, let's say they were going to earn 7% interest on that. That individual is going to be paying well over $9,000 of tax on that income. Now, let's take that 250000 and we, instead of spouse A taking that bonus, they actually get their spouse to invest that $250,000. So they've passed it to their spouse to do that. They can do that. However, there needs to be, as I mentioned in writing in that, and an interest rate assigned to that loan. So basically, CRA has implemented a set of rules known as attribution rules that limits the amount that a taxpayer's ability to split their income with their spouses. What those attribution rules state is that any income or loss on transfer property will be basically attributed back to the transferring spouse for tax purposes. So that's why this needs to be very clear and cut because CRA would potentially not allow it. So strategy number three is a spousal loan. This is a, a much more complicated strategy. I'm just going to give you a little bit on this. And if it's something, I could do a podcast on this topic alone. So what it is, is it's, a, it's basically a form of income splitting. And it can just basically allow a higher income earning spouse to transfer assets to a lower income earning spouse. So unlike the previous strategies that we just went through, which deal with taxes on income from the source, spousal loans help reduce tax on the second generation income. So basically the, the, the income you're getting from your investments that would result from investments held solely in a higher income earning spouse's name. And uh, like the reason why I'm even bringing it up because income splitting is it, it's on it's one of the more practical ways for a family to reduce their taxes. And if done properly, income splitting, it can allow a higher income earning spouse to shift their income to a lower earning income spouse who will basically be taxed in a lower tax bracket. So I'll just try and summarize really quick on this to give you an idea, but it's something that you'd have to look into with your advisor or accountant to get more in depth on it. So basically the CRA has implemented rules that they're called attribution rules that limits a taxpayer's ability just to split their income with their spouses. There, there's certain rules to be followed for that. There's attribution rules that state that any income or loss on transferred property will be attributed back to the transferring spouse for tax purposes. So any net capital gains or allowable losses resulting from the disposition will also be taxable in that transferring spouse's hands. Like I know I'm going through a lot of terms here, but it's basically... Higher income earning spouse wants to give money to the lower income earning spouse to invest so he doesn't he or she doesn't get taxed on. You can do it, but there's a set of rules and that you have to follow, or CRAs is gonna come back and say, no way, we're taxing you on it. And what this what it involves, it's called a spousal loan to avoid those attribution rules. It's 
you actually have to have a written agreement. You have to charge interest on the loan. So the higher income earning spouse charges an interest rate on the loan. And that rate, it has to be in line with CRA's prescribed rate, which is currently 4%. Got to show proof that that's being paid each year. And um, basically that's kind of where I'm going to leave off on that. It can make sense for the significant high earners. You just It made a lot more sense when interest rates were lower because a couple of years ago, that prescribed interest rate for these loans was 1%. Now with it being higher because interest rates have gone up so much, it definitely decreases the benefits of this. But I, it is a strategy. So I just wanted to at least just touch on it. Hopefully I didn't make your head spin, Patrice. <laughs> You did. <laughs> but I can see that, yes, it's something you really need to talk to your professional about. Well, this is this this is what a lot of this comes down to, is this is just the reason why you have to have these conversations because it, it can be complex. So I'm just trying to give a quick overview on some of these strategies. Another one I'll just touch on is prescribed annuities. So what that is, it's just a spe- it's it allows for a special tax treatment for the interest portion of annuity payment. Basically what it does is just it's tax deferral. It's lower tax in the early years that could otherwise occur and it just kind of levels after tax income. So basically this is a defer method and just some key points on this because what you can do is you put a lump sum into this and they offer just a tax advantage income source for non-registered money. So if you have a whole bunch of non-registered money and you want a guaranteed income source from it, there is options for that. And, uh, any annuity payment consists of two elements. Basically, there's, it's capital and interest. And for non-registered annuities, only the interest is taxable. Your original capital in isn't if it's non-registered. And basically what it is, is annuitants typically pay tax in the interest portion of the annuity in the early years. This front-end taxation causes significant tax consequences in the early years. But however, that's a regular annuity. To address this, the government allowed the creation of a thing called a prescribed annuity. And what that is, it means instead of just paying all the tax up front, you're paying it distributed on a level basis over the life of the annuity. So it's less tax paid in earlier years than usual, as I mentioned, levels after tax income. But yeah, and it's like I said, it, it, there can be a guarantee period. It just can't exceed the annuance uh, 90th birthday. So there's there's restrictions around that, but it's just another source of income and then how to kind of level out the tax, or as I mentioned with the D defer it in this strategy. The next one is the order of withdrawals. So many clients that they'll ask when they get into retirement, where should I withdraw? Like this is a course for people that have multiple accounts. Where should I withdraw it from first? So it's the most tax efficient is my RSP, my tax free savings account, my non-registered account. Fortunately, there's no one size that fits all for this. However, if you do it right for your individual situation, withdrawing from the various types of retirement accounts in the right order, it, it can make a big difference. So in light of this, I'm just going to go through an overview in general terms with this, being this order doesn't mean it's for everyone, but traditionally tax professionals, they suggest withdrawing first from the taxable accounts then the tax for deferred accounts, and then finally the tax-free accounts where obviously the withdrawals are tax-free. So the goal is to allow tax-deferred assets to grow longer. Um, for most people with multiple retirement savings accounts and relatively even retirement income year over year, a better approach might even be proportional withdrawals. 
So and basically that is once a target amount is determined, the investor would withdraw from every account based on that account's percentage of their overall savings and figure it out from that end. It, the result of that just gives you a bit more of a stable tax bill of retirement and it potentially lowers the lifetime taxes and hopefully gives you a higher lifetime after tax income. So that that's a lot of tax professionals uh, approach on it, but this is why you have to look at your individual situation. On the other hand, you could do an RSP RIF withdrawal strategy to maximize the withdrawals from them early on in your retirement. So the opposite, especially if you tend to delay taking CPP and OAS. This basically what this does, it has the added benefit of reducing your overall RIF amount, which will reduce the taxable minimum withdrawal amount. So it means you start taking the registered assets early so that they're not all forced out and deferred later on. And if you don't, and with our clients, we'll do this and we'll look at it. And if it fits, then we're like, well, start taking RIF income now, even though you don't need it, start deregistering it and putting that in your tax-free savings account so it can grow tax-free there. And by the time you're 72, you're not going to have all this money pushed out at you uh, and potentially clawing back your old age security. So one of the biggest factors with this strategy is age. There's three basically age groups that you want to look at, and that's under age 65, between 65 and 71, and over 71. And the reason is if you're under age 65, as I just mentioned, you're not potentially not re uh, receiving OAS, and that means you can draw the money out from your RSP and put it in your TFSA, and you're not going to be clawed back on any of those benefits. Generally, once you turn 65, you're starting to get old security, and now you've got to be careful of that clawback we've discussed a couple of times uh, today in the previous episode. So between the ages of 65 and 71, you still have options. You can choose whether to take money from the RSP or not, and if it makes sense, and being careful that OAS clawback. But once you're over 71, you have less flexibility in this order of withdrawals, just because now the government wants their tax on those RSPs, and they're going to force you to start taking that minimum amount out. So basically, like having a withdrawal strategy in combination with income splitting and deferral strategies, it can definitely minimize taxes for the family. But there is an order of operations that, of a, approach that you want to make sure that you know for your own individual situation. Of course, preferably you have this organized before you retire, because that will give you more options. Um, so it's definitely just to, once again, have these chats with your financial advisor, accountant, or whoever is helping you deal with all this. Okay, so thanks, Patrice. I'll just leave a couple uh, takeaways here. So tax planning, it's the single most effective way to make the most of your income in retirement. And it's also the biggest expense if you don't plan for it in retirement. What works for some, which you heard me say multiple times a day, doesn't necessarily work for everyone. Don't take that advice you heard at the party or the golf club and all that it can be very dangerous. You literally have to sit down with a professional to look at your individual situation. Can't stress that enough. The makings of a good retirement income plan, it's basically the one that puts the least amount of stress on your assets and pays the least amount of tax. That's what it comes down to. So once again, the goal is to try and keep that net income level low with preserving tax credits and watching out for OAS clawback and, and just playing with that with those factors to make sure that you're not paying more tax than you have to. And of course, the three Ds of tax planning are important to incorporate. So hopefully I gave you a nugget or two out of this and I appreciate you guys for listening. And one more time, Chris, how can people reach you if they've got questions? Any The website, 
uh, greenprivatewealth.com to the contact page, LinkedIn, our Facebook, Green Private Wealth page, any of the above. All right. And if you haven't listened to part one of this mini series on taxes and retirement, it's easy to find. All you have to do is follow or subscribe to this podcast. And please be sure to share this with friends and family as well. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to The Ride, Life, Work, and Wealth Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. All comments are of a general nature and should not be relied upon as individual advice. The views and opinions expressed in this commentary may not necessarily reflect those of Harborfront Wealth Management. While every attempt is made to ensure accuracy, facts and figures are not guaranteed. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing or tax advice. Please seek advice from your accountant regarding anything raised in the content of the podcast regarding your individual tax situation. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.